Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show where we talk about the many careers that intersect with academia. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and this week I'm speaking with Dr. Sean Canaram. Sean has held many interesting positions over the course of his career, and one of his current ventures is as a partner and co-founder at SidePorch, a consulting company. Some of his other roles include Chief of Staff for the Jeff Skoll Group and the MacArthur Foundation. He earned a PhD from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in Comparative Literature, Master's degrees from Duke University in International Development Policy and Santa Clara University in Interdisciplinary Education, and a Bachelor's in English and Spanish from Santa Clara. Sean and I talk about his PhD work, what it's like to be a Chief of Staff, and his work, which at its core is to help people who are making the world a better place. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Sean, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Joyce. Looking forward to the conversation. So you and I have recently been talking about storytelling and specifically the role that your personal story um, plays when you're kind of talking about yourself and especially about your career. And so I was wondering to start out with if you could just tell us kind of the five minute version of your story as you um, tell it now. Sure. Or I'll, I'll try to, you know, when we were talking recently, I was reflecting on how so many get stuck with a, a story that they start with and just kind of hold on to it over time. When really in our lives, <clears throat> these stories change because we keep living. Um, for me, kind of the origins of what I'll share right now came from you know, what at that time was a mid-career change where I was asked to write down, you know, what's your story? Why are you here? How did you end up where where you've gotten with no discernible qualifications for any of the jobs that you've had in the past? Um, and I realized there was a neat chance to kind of retrofit the story back onto my life in ways that I can I feel that are true, but then to try and take it so that this narrative, you know, helps me think through how to filter and prioritize and, you know, make decisions moving forward. I mean, for me, Right now, when I think about, you know, the career I've been blessed to have, you know, I've always been in positions where I've, you know, I've been able to support and serve uh, those who are really working to make a difference on the planet. So, you know, my job has always been to help create an environment where other people can thrive in service to the, in service to the planet. And that in service to the planet piece is something that, that really is important to me going forward. So, um, you know, in my story, I started, um, as a, as a teacher. So I started teaching high school and coaching baseball and the way I approached those jobs really track with that, you know, kind of underlying theme to the story I started with of creating environments where these students, where these athletes were able to, you know, be their best and try and enable them to teach each other and be of service to each other. And then that same ethos tried to, like, when I got a chance to teach at the university level, when I, as you mentioned, was able to be chief of staff at the MacArthur Foundation, where our job there, and I think we'll talk about this later in this conversation, was all about being of service to others and helping enable some extraordinary men and women around the world to do what they were trying to do. <clears throat> and it carried on through a couple permutations of a chief of staff job. And then what we're doing now on the consulting side, which is you know, helping groups all over the world who are trying to make a positive impact on the planet through their their efforts and also on the investment side through, you know, helping deploy capital in ways that, you know, are kind of helping groups that are fighting for the forces of good 
Um, that same framing, at least for me in this story, is trying to come up with a consistent approach, whether I'm working or whether I'm at home. You know, I've got a, I'm sitting here in my 16-year-old's room that he was kind enough to let, let me work in and with my 13-year-old daughter uh, with, you know, the relationship where I'm going to celebrate 20 years of marriage here in about three weeks. Yeah, you know, just trying to be the same person, whether I'm at home or working with others um, around the world. And I'm hoping that that same story gets to stay true moving forward is, you know, always being around others that are, are really pushing to do good stuff. And, you know, I feel really privileged and blessed to have, you know, had the, the gigs I've had, you know, up to now. And I think we'll talk about some of the kind of the stepping stones that got there, but then, you know, moving forward, you know, how do I, how do I keep being able to be of service and keep surrounding myself and being surrounded by and hopefully surrounding others with um, good quality human beings that are, are trying to you know, pull together the resources and approaches to make a difference. Awesome. Um, I love that. And I guess one thing I was thinking about is like, I definitely want to dig into your story a bit, but, I, but while we start and we think about, um, like how some of us tell our stories in kind of uninteresting ways. I guess maybe we start with like, okay, I, I started at this place and then we just kind of glom on facts on top of facts as we go through life. And I guess what you're saying is like, think about one, like, I guess like um, the, the thing that really motivates you and make that a big part of your story which for you it sounds like is doing things in service to the planet and kind of draw that line through your career and then also think about where you want things to go so it's not just like past oriented it's very much like future and your future oriented yeah that might have been a really kind way of saying hey sean you just gave me the traditional story of your life could you do a better job um <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> That at least that's that's of course how I hear it with look, looking through the insecurities and the assumptions that I bring. Um, but I think that's that's something to think through is you know what is it that you're trying to express and to whom? It's really easy to get caught up in a story, and often the stories I tell or stories I hear people tell about their lives or careers are trying to focus or validate or talk through their own lens as opposed to like when you're storytelling. It's usually for a reason, whether it's entertaining or putting information across or trying to get something across. Um, <clears throat> like for me, I think you you said it really well. And it's trying to figure out, and this changes over time, like what needs to be true for me in my life? And then how do I infuse that in a story that the person with whom I'm talking can relate? And those people change. So having the same story at all times isn't always the most effective way to convey that kind of information. <clears throat> and so, you know, what needs to be true for me? And this is how a lot of conversations I have with folks, we try and frame it through that, that lens instead of what do you want to do or what kind of job do you want or what's it's, you know, what, it, what are you trying to accomplish? What has to be true for you right now? Like for me, being of service is one of those things that just has to be true. And I'm, I, I think it was kind of there all along, but now I'm in a place in my career where I can kind of dictate a little bit or at least influence more than I used to be, like what the opportunity set is. But also what needs to be true is I got to be a good, gotta, you know, I have to be a good father to my kids. I have to be a good husband to my wife. I have to be there for, I mean, there's this basket of responsibilities I've taken on that I want to be able to, to, you know, address and be able to honor. Um, 
And then when I think about the assumptions, like always trying to understand the assumptions from which I'm operating when I'm constructing this story. Uh, there, there was one funny story. I think I shared this with you because uh, I know some of this is thinking through like, what the heck do you do when you get a PhD and kind of launch out in the world? But I had an advisor once where when I, um, when I defended my dissertation prospectus, so when I was going in front of my then committee to say, here's what I think I'm going to do for this, this project, I, mean, I came out of it you know, literally in tears. Quite possibly, I think I was. I had some tears fall out of my eyes when I walked out of the room. I didn't do great, and um, nor did some of the people on the committee. And I was talking to my advisor, and she's like, "Sean, what do you got to do now?" And I'm like, <clears throat> "I have to write this great dissertation, and I have to do a better job, and I have to make these people." Write. She's she's like, no, "No, no, you you have one job right now. That's to get five signatures on a piece of paper, which is what you need to get the sign off, so that you can have the the dissertation complete." And it completely shifted my entire understanding of what I was about in this last year, what turned out to be my last year, because it's like a much more pragmatic and clear-eyed approach to what I needed to do. And I'm still proud of what I produced, but it was really different than if I was trying to create some masterwork, which I think I'm still incapable of creating. And I certainly was back then, but I've always kept that frame in almost anything I've ever done of like, what is it I'm actually supposed to do? Not what is it I think the other people need, like, but you have to like kind of get down to it and, and at least for me and figure out what is it I'm trying to accomplish on this planet? How does this story that I'm constructing for myself, either looking back or looking forward, fit into it? And then how can I do a better job tomorrow than I did today of kind of trying to accomplish those? Yeah, I really like that. And I guess something else that I am kind of thinking about is, is like, you said you want to bring your same you still want to bring you Sean yourself you don't want to be playing a character when you're at work when you're at home you know you want to bring your whole self um that's different than telling your story in the exact same way that you would tell it to yourself uh because you're you're tailoring it to an audience even though um I guess it doesn't actually, you know, it's not, it's not like you're misrepresenting it at any stage. You're still representing the truth, but you're putting it in a way that like your audience can get the information that they need out of it, which I think is probably hardest with our own personal stories because it's personal. It's like really hard to step back and be like, well, what does this person actually need to know about me? Well, and, and often there's a time sequence that at least it's easy for me to forget about that, it, you know, it's over time. Like you, sometimes we can think we get a sense of someone's character or personality or who they are in a quick engagement or through an introduction and you trust the other person that's making the, the intro, but it takes a while to figure out <clears throat> who people are. It takes a while for, you know, to earn the trust that others might be kind enough to, you know, give me upfront, but you still need to earn it over time. Um, but for some, like, with my kids, the important thing is I'm their dad and there's other stuff that I might do. But, you know, when I talk to them, you know, I'm, I'm dad. When I'm talking to someone for a new potential consulting engagement, I'm a consultant. Um, but I, I try not to hide any of the other stuff. And, you know, that said, there's also like I have spent a good portion of my life and probably still do, you know, driven by certain insecurities and like, am I good enough? And all the kind of ticks that make me who I am the good, the bad, the, <clears throat> the crazy, um, and trying to be aware of them and being able to see how each of these different elements of who I am influence who I am today, think about how I want them to influence who I am moving forward. 
and then you know think about how all that kind of works together on a day-to-day basis while you know saying all this stuff and making it seem like i'm always thinking about the future or the past always trying to be present as well because i mean the only moment i'm for sure that i have been given is the one i have right now i have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow i've got some decent guesses (laughs) at what might might happen in the next couple hours in the next couple days but i have no idea so you know all of this is really like how can i be present and be the best version of myself take advantage of the gifts that i've been lucky enough to get and, and try and try and be of service at the same time. I love that. I was just thinking when you were saying like, yeah, your, you know, your relationship with your kids is different than your relationship with your, the people you're consulting for. And I, and I guess like, yeah, your, your teenagers may not care that much about what you do at work, but I was just thinking about in my relationship with my dad, now I care a lot about his whole career, you know? So it's like, yeah, your relationships are just changing so much through time. Well, like, it's important for me that the kids do know what I do. Uh, I think a framing I've used for a long time is, you know, am I behaving, am I acting in ways that if my kids were looking over my shoulder, I would be proud. Like that's, for me, that's not been a bad approach to any decision, especially the hard ones um, that we're faced with. So I don't know that I'm different between the two different groups, but you know, there's, the the kids don't need to hear about the day-to-day stuff that I'm doing any more than other folks might need to hear about, but I'm not hiding it. Like I, there, I I can't imagine there's anyone I've worked with in the last 16 years that isn't well aware (laughs) of, of what my life actually looks like. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that. And I also, in my opinion, there's not enough exchange between people's personal and professional lives um, in the, in the way that we can't, yeah, it's it's like not always appropriate to be like, oh, this is going on with my kids this week. And I I guess my perspective is usually thinking about it from like, you know, how did we evolve as a species? Well, we evolved in like groups interacting all day. There wasn't like this silo where it's like dad is at work now and like he's not speaking with us for like the next eight hours. So I, I don't know. Though so sometimes that's important for some, like there are some that really guard their privacy. And, mm. and I think that's okay, right? Because each yeah. person has to decide how she or he wants to be out in the world. But, you know, as someone running a few organizations or having been in the position of, of kind of influencing operations, it, it always strikes me that leaders have, I don't know if it's an obligation, but I would say within an organization I would want to be part of, leaders have an obligation to create spaces where people feel comfortable to bring their selves as they feel comfortable, you know, sharing where it's okay to talk about struggles, even if you don't get into details, but it's okay to let you like, Hey, I got some stuff going on. I really need to take care of. And in order to feel comfortable doing that, often it's the leader's vulnerability or openness to, you know, all kinds of different things that create the environment where someone else, especially more junior staff have a chance, have that ability to, to open up which I think more and more, especially coming out of this nutty year of COVID, is is essential. Like, it's essential to recognize the humanity and the people that we work with. They're not just workers or co-workers or employees. These are human beings that we're in this kind of complex dance of life with. Yeah, but and I also, I really like that you made the clarification that, like, yeah, there are people who really want to protect their privacy for various reasons, 
And probably one of the main one is that they may not be in a situation where the upper level staff has set things up in a way that they want to be vulnerable at all. Might might be like none of their business as far as some people are concerned. So, yeah, I think if if you can go through the day just assuming that the people around you are doing their best, and then that that usually is not a bad. At least it has been my experience that having that assumption firmly in place makes a lot of other stuff fall into place for you. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. And yeah, I, I also tend to think that people are doing their best and are, have good intentions. And I think there's a lot of, um, projected bad intentions right now too. It's like something I, especially online, it seems like a lot of us are kind of, or not us, but a lot of people are projecting bad intentions on a lot of people. And I'm not sure that's a very constructive way to live. Yeah. Well, and I, I mentioned a few times feeling kind of privileged and fortunate, blessed to be in the position I'm in. <clears throat> the work that we do and supporting a bunch of groups that are trying to make a positive impact on the planet, I, I think it, it seems that many that have chosen to kind of go down that route and have followed their passions or followed the the desire to make a difference, whether it's on for-profit or not-profit side or government work, often kind of self-select into to groups that have that type of a, a mindset. Like most that I know that are working in these spaces come from an optimistic point of view where it is possible to make a change. While there are some that have kind of have despaired and yet are still fighting, pushing the, the rock uphill. Um, no, we're, we're really lucky to be surrounded by just extraordinary people and groups that we get to work with. Yeah. And okay, so I am curious what you define I guess in service to the planet, I want to know more about what your vision for the planet is. Um, yeah, like what what you mean by making the world a better place. All right, so here's my sneaky evasion to that question, just to, right up front to tee it up for you to tell me I, I completely didn't answer your question. Um, right now, I get to define that by working with others and supporting groups that are trying to make a difference. So you know, we're working in education, in fusion, in carbon capture, in um, genetic analysis, and all kinds of different things. Um, and any one of the domains or topics that we're working in could have an entire, you know, podcast put to trying to figure out what impact means and how do you measure it and where does it go. For me, it's like I get inspired by people who are inspired. I get inspired by people who have that gleam in their eye that they're you know, on earth to go do something special and try to help them and make it possible. That's where, that's where I really enjoy being. Um, there's topics or areas that I care a great deal about. I spend a lot of time in education, conservation. Yeah, I can name a few, but at the end of the day, I'm not working in any one of those. Like my my job is to help the people that have that amaze me because they've taken that leap. And this is part of like a lot of times I wonder like, when am I, am I ever going to like be so passionate about any one thing that I'm just going to have to go do it. <clears throat> and I see people who have that inspiration, whether it's, you know, to, to sing and make music, whether it's to, you know, stave off climate change, whether it's to reform education for, you know, K-12 and it, it's those people that I get really inspired by. Um, and there's also this liminal 
place of, you know, there, there are so many that are wanting to go make sure that their work and their careers are driving towards some kind of some, some impact and being able to tell stories or support individuals or groups that are trying to kind of move over and start fighting for the forces of good. Like that space is always inspiring to me too. It's like really messy and there's no answers to what the future is going to look like. But despite that ambiguity and that lack of certainty, folks are still willing to, to kind of make that leap. And that's, that's where I really find a lot of passion and enjoyment. Oh, I really like that. And I didn't think it was that evasive. It's like you're letting other people set the agenda and you are there to support them. And I mean, to hold them accountable, I think is too, too aggressive or cocky a way to say it because it's not my job to hold someone else accountable to what they think of impacted. But I think it, the job that we put ourselves in and get hired for is helping people ask questions that'll lead to accountability of what does impact mean for you at you know, you know, a venture firm needs to figure out if they're going to be working in impact, what the hell impact actually means. How are you going to know if you're making a demonstrable effect towards that impact? And how are those methods of, of measurement going to change over time? And those are hard questions. <clears throat> and a lot of times, especially to start those questions, it's much more of a kind of mission ethos building process than a hard metrics process to define it. Because especially if you're talking about very different human beings from different backgrounds. So that work is is where I find real, it's super interesting. And the, the answers and how we answer it and how others are answering it in communication with each other is changing so rapidly at this point um, in time. So it's, it's a fun place to be working. Hmm. And I guess let's back up a tiny bit and just kind of define the work as a consultant you're doing, because I'm not sure that the people familiar with this podcast are going to necessarily understand what that means. So can you give, you don't have to name by name if you don't want to, but you, yeah, you, you threw out some example, carbon capture, um, fusion. Can you kind of walk through, I guess, what it is you guys do? Sure. Uh, and it's a question that we get asked by even our advisors at, at the company we run of like, you know, what the hell are you guys actually doing? Um, like for us, moving in and among complex systems is important, like trying to be able to figure out what can we learn from what's happening across sectors, industries, geographies, um, maturities of organizations, what's happening in a bunch of different sectors so that when a specific problem set crops up, we can take all of those different ideas and networks and deploy them in service to trying to solve a problem in any one specific area. So at the company we run called Sideporch, we do strategy operations and partnerships work, I think are the buckets that a lot of this falls into where every organization we're working with has an underlying ethos of what they stand for, what the impact is they want to have on the planet and how they're going to measure it. And then those insights kind of flow into how an organization is built. So we help with setting up business strategies or growth strategies. Um, we help with so big strategic stuff. And this could be for a nonprofit where we had the real pleasure of being able to help Girls Inc. refashion their next five-year strategy for their national organization that's serving um, dozens of affiliates across the United States and Canada. 
we've been able to help build, um, we're helping on the education strategy for Logitech. So a, a global company that's looking to support the education sector. But we've also supported a group called Commonwealth Fusion Systems since they launched out of MIT to you know put in place what's gonna probably lead to a company putting uh, an operating fusion reactor on the grid within the next five or six years. And they were very early stage when we started working with them. So we get to work across all these different sectors. And in addition to the strategy, we're, we work on operations. So what are the operational infrastructures that need to be stood up in order to help carry out these strategies? This could be, <clears throat> how do you put in place uh, a communications team? How do you put in place account management and sales, which is what we've been doing for a couple of different COVID resources. Um, for a couple of groups, we even helped, like how do you put a physical security infrastructure in place to, to um, protect your employees when they're traveling around the world, but also facilities uh, in certain places. So whatever operations are required to carry it out. And then partnerships for, in order to solve some of the big problems facing the planet or go after the opportunities that are in front of us, it almost always requires multiple actors coming together in some way, whether this is for funding. <clears throat> so trying to access resources or trying to deploy resources. So how do you pull together appropriate sources of, of funding to be able to, to help grow an organization for profit or not for profit? It could be helping set up, like we were able to support the establishment of a public-private partnership between the Department of Energy and the emerging fusion industry on behalf of the, the fusion client. So partnerships come in a lot of different approaches, both kind of time limited or enduring. And the last thing I'll say about partnerships and then pause, um, you know, for us, you know, a lot of other consulting groups will think about like a ring fenced, here's our community. And they try and, you know, get the 10 or 100 or 2000 groups that are part of their community. I mean, for us, there, there are times that that's useful, but in the places we're working in these kind of strange, ambiguous, new problem sets that are coming around the corner. Like I have no idea what community is required to solve a problem I'm going to meet tomorrow. So what we try and do with our own teams and our systems and anybody that we bring into our advisory groups is improve our ability to go move and find and create new communities based on what any kind of problem or opportunity is in front of us, and which is a very different approach. Um, and takes a different type of mindset than what some of the traditional approaches to network development and partnerships would look like. Wow, yeah. Um, I wonder if you if you have a, an answer ready to go. If you don't, it's okay. But I guess I'm thinking about like when I was going through academia, I had a very um, poor view of the profit sector. And I guess it's only recently that I realized, one, that the for-profit sector is full of people who are trying to serve people and planet. And I guess I wonder if you have thought about, like, if you've thought about this disconnect between, like, academic communities and business communities, which you have been in both of, and, like, why this disconnect exists and should it exist and um i'd say there's there's probably a, a range of all kinds of different answers to to your good question um a few of the ones i've seen you know, a lot of it ties down to incentives 
where what is it that's driving behavior or driving organizational requirements across these different sectors and industries? You know, when you come down to how people are influenced by behaviors and how people's behaviors are influenced by incentives, to say that clearly, there's actually a lot of commonality. So when you think about the human element in these different groups, you know, I think it's easier to kind of see flows between them. And there are certain types of people who are influenced or incentivized by different things that tend to accumulate in any one of these sectors. Um, but I, I don't see as big a distinction between them, uh, particularly if you're trying to think about you know, how do we solve things, solve for things like climate change? And it's climate change itself isn't one thing, right? It's a multiplicity of factors that are, are working together. But in order to do anything, it requires all of the above to be operating together. So I think some of these distinctions, yeah, and there's good reasons to have distinctions between these groups, like for academic integrity or intellectual um, rigor, there are ways that you need to you probably operate differently in an academic setting, in a research setting, from what you would do in a, a for-profit setting. Um, but those aren't like secret factors. Like those are factors we can identify, name, understand, and build systems to be able to help with engagements across. Like the most interesting places are, are areas in the world, I think, are ones where all of these different sectors are able to operate and work together. It takes individuals, organizations, systems that understand and value each of these areas. Like I hear a lot, like a lot of times you'll hear almost derision in one sector for another sector, as opposed to curiosity of and, and appreciation. And there's frustration that abounds across these systems and in between these systems. But for us to really move forward as a human race, it kind of takes all of the above to, to work on it. Um, but the incentive piece is is important to understand, to, to be able to move in and among these different sectors. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like the incentives, yeah, can be a, a good or a bad thing. Like the incentives in the academic community being very like, um, I guess, climbing a hierarchical ladder and gaining um, respect uh, is good in some ways. It does. It, it means, I guess, like creativity in some cases is flourishing, but it also is like, you know, there are many problems associated with that. And the same stuff exists in the for-profit sector and in the government sector, right? Like you get, and there are people that love and almost need those type of hierarchies to be able to, to work across. Um, but I think it comes down also to, there's a question of pragmatics when you're trying to accomplish a certain thing in figuring out what that thing is and how one gets to it. <clears throat> and there are times that that thing isn't even a destination. It's, you know, the approach or the creativity or the expression that's important. Um, where in certain areas it isn't, it's like, we know we need to get to B. How do we get to B? And let's go. Um, but, and I mean, I come from a, a quite true, especially when I was there, a quite traditional discipline of comparative literature that, you know, I took 27 courses over three, three and a half years before I started writing my dissertation. You had to have a strong um, background in three national languages and the literatures of those, of those, um, and had to be able to be competent in all three of the languages. I mean, I had to teach in all three of the languages. 
and it it comes from a like a long tradition of study of you know literatures from different national traditions and cultures um and it lead led to for me the ability to analyze different cultures and different takes on certain topics from a multiplicity of, of angles, it really prepared me for being able to move in and among these complex systems. For others, it's it, it didn't necessarily happen that way. It's more of I'm getting ready to write you know research papers and and articles for and manuscripts for the rest of my career. So um, I think I was fortunate that the degree I was in gave me the flexibility to design a program that was really quite un- not traditional for the discipline I was in. Um, which also led me to not getting a job <laughs> in the <laughs> discipline that I thought I was gonna gonna be working for my whole life. Yeah. Okay. So let's back up a tiny bit and say comparative literature. It sounds like that is where one compares literature, and it sounds like in your case you needed to do that in three languages. Is that common in all comparative literature? Uh, tradi- it's, I mean, Carolina, where I went to, where I got to my PhD, um, came from that type of a tradition where you work in three different languages. For me, it was English, Spanish, and Portuguese, um, where your work was supposed to be looking at literate, like some type of topic or some question or approach or type of literature that moved in and among these, these different uh, literature traditions or language traditions. Others, when I was there, were also looking at theoretical con- um, conceptualizations as a different type of, of language. Um, some would look at different, dis- like whether it's film or com- computational science or you know, the theory uh, that would fit into that. Though you know, some of the more traditional professors would always give you that arched eyebrow if you tried to claim that that was part of what you were doing. Um, but it, it comes from a like a European tradition of of complet. Uh, for me, you know, I I tried to stay true to the different languages. But what I looked and compared was you know languages of economics, and I was looking at how World Bank loans were prepared, and looked at a thematic analysis of how the bank wrote about its loans and did its diligence about these areas in which it was deploying capital alongside what local cultural arbiters of local knowledge would be writing these cronistas in uh, Spanish and, and Brazilian speaking and Portuguese speaking Latin America. So the analysis and the comparing that I did was, I think, consistent, hopefully in rigor, but certainly in approach and thematic approach from what my colleagues were doing. But I was looking at really, really different stuff to compare. Um, but that's because I was always wanting to look at connections in and among these different systems. Okay, so let's let's answer some easy things first. What does the World Bank do? That's actually not a really easy question, <laughs> uh, or it's it's an easy question. It's not easy to answer. So the the bank, the World Bank Group, is actually made up of a whole bunch of different like kind of alphabet soup that operate around the world. Where part of what they're trying to what they're really trying to do is end poverty. I think is one quick approach and being able to use financial and policy and fiscal and um, consultative political uh, influence in order to bring about these systems. And a lot of times it's deploying capital, whether it's through, you know, debt loans, whether it's through equity, whether it's through grants, 
to um, to support the development of nations in different geographic places around the world. And I'm sure past colleagues at the bank would tell me that I could have done a better job answering that. Um, but they're closely associated with the internet, the, the IFC, and a whole bunch of other uh, entities that you read about in the Economist every week. If if you're reading that, IFC. Uh, I think it's International uh, Finance Corporation. Oh, great. Okay. So you were, it sounds like, making comparisons so that so someone is living in a city in Latin America, they are seeing the World Bank try to end poverty in their area. They are commenting on how that's going. Was that the kind of thing you were comparing? All right, so I'm going to try and remember back a bunch of years. And it was funny, the same uh, professor who told me I had to get five signatures on a piece of paper also told me in that same conversation, she's like, Sean, you're not Nietzsche. No one is ever going to read your dissertation, right? And we'll probably come back to that in a minute. But it, it, like, no one's ever going to read this. Yet. Just, yeah, get, right. So I'll thankfully you're not on video to, to see the, the look of disdain on your face. Um, so anyway, so um, what I was doing is looking focused on Latin America because so, I had the Spanish and the, the Portuguese thing. Um, and I was looking at uh, theme, urban urban development. So approach to shanty towns in housing, approach to transportation in Rio and Mexico City were the two focus areas, two of the, the more important cities down there, at least for the World Bank portfolio. Um, looking at uh, response to disaster. So what happened after the 85 earthquake in, in Mexico City? And I looked at how the World Bank prepared their loans. So what is the diligence they did? How did they write about these different locations in their, their loan write-ups and analyses and um, proposals alongside how these cronistas, these literary journalists, we don't um, necessarily have this tradition of cronista in the United States so much as in Latin America, but these are very well-known um, editorialists, excuse me, who, I mean, newspapers are sold based on who the cronista was um, in each of these cities. And it's a long tradition that actually came from um, Spain and Portugal uh, hundreds and hundreds of years prior. So I looked at how these, you know, kind of these arbiters of local knowledge would write about the same stuff. So how does Elena Poniatowska, Carlos Monsivais, write about the metro in Mexico City and looked at how the World Bank wrote about them trying to think through like, could I identify similarities and differences and how, and this would have been the work later in life if I continue doing this stuff um, as a researcher is, if the analysis or the approach and the thematic, um, yeah, the thematic approach between the Cronistas and the World Bank loan preparers or, or financial preparers, if they aligned, would the loans end up doing better? I mean, this came from, again, thinking about the insecurities that drove me, like a long history of hanging out with social scientists, colleagues who would be like, oh, you read books for a living. That's cute. I'm going to read a book someday when I retire. As a, where I just had them like, I like there is an, not just for its own value, which I believe in strongly for cultural production and literature, music, um, writing, dance, all kinds of different cultural production. But also there's, I think if considered in different ways, practical implications for what the knowledge and what the expression can teach us for how we might build and operate our societies. So, so that's kind of where I was coming at. Um, it did turn out that the loans I was looking at, some of the loans that I found to be most 
aligned uh, in their preparation with these local, um, these chronistas, actually performed at, among the best of all of the World Bank's global portfolio in the years I was studying. I have no you know, definitive argument to make about whether there's actually a, <laughs> an alignment a between that, those findings. Um, or even the word correlation didn't come to my mind, Joyce. So, yeah, that would have been the work of at least the early part of a career had I landed a job in academia. Mm -hmm. So why, what, what happened? So it sounds like you did want a career in academia. It didn't happen. So you no, so, so I left. So when we left Carolina, um, I had finished the PhD and I also did a degree in international development policy at Duke to make sure that I understood the economic and policy underpinnings of what I was pretending I would was an expert in writing this dissertation on. Um, my wife had just finished her law degree and we had two little kids. So we had, you know, a, an infant and a three-year-old and we decided to move back to Chicago to get close to where I grew up <clears throat> just to be around family and to have family in the life of our kids as they're growing up and to help us as we launch into the next stage of our careers, like the third or fourth career for both of us. Um, and as many in the humanities will attest, you don't go to Chicago and tell University of Chicago and Northwestern, hey, I'm here as a newly minted PhD and I'm going to be ready to teach this interdisciplinary stuff that may, probably doesn't make a lot of sense to, to most. Um, I went hard at the job search to be in Chicago and came in second in a couple different searches um, and almost got it. But then I knew that it would take, I knew going in that it would probably take a few years to kind of land in the kind of job I wanted. I didn't want to go back to high school teaching at the time. I loved it that time, but I wanted to kind of try and do something different. So I reached out to the then chief of staff at the MacArthur Foundation, whom I had met over the years, to just ask if they knew of any nonprofits or grantees in town that could use service for, for a year or two. And I called five minutes after he had posted his job rec, um, because he was stepping down. So it was just kind of the universe helped. And then a, you know, a professor wrote a letter of intro that got, got my application reviewed. And I was very, very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to become chief of staff at MacArthur because we moved there, you know, and just took the train into Chicago for five years and had a chance to support two different presidents, very, very different men. Um, one who had been doing it a long time, one that I got to help kind of learn the job as he went. And that's how I just kind of right time and right place and was ready for it. Wow. Cool. So the MacArthur Foundation, my personal context is basically the MacArthur Genius Grants. And so can you tell me a little bit about what the foundation does and also what a chief of staff does? Yeah, so more of these easy easy sounding questions, but have much, <laughs> much longer kind of nutty answers. Uh, so the MacArthur Foundation is headquartered in Chicago with, when I was there, we had four um, field offices around the world. Now I think they have three. Um, the MacArthur Fellows Program, which had been named the Genius Awards Program by a, a newspaper, and the foundation never pushed back. They kind of like that title, but they've, oh, never, they've never claimed it as their own, is a fantastic and I think a, like just a national a treasure in the philanthropic space for what they've been able to accomplish for investing in creative endeavors, not because of what you've done before, but because they are banking on the – 
betting that you're going to have something great in the tank moving forward. Um, and it's the smallest grant-making area of the entire foundation. It's just the one that they spend the most time on PR and marketing for a bunch of different reasons. Um, being part of that, being able to learn a little bit about a program that's kept intentionally kind of mysterious was one of the most fun parts of that job. But the foundation, it's a, a broad um, range of different topics that it worked in when I was there. And it's changed since because there's been two different presidents since I left um, and different board members. But they worked in, they had an international program that worked in seven or eight different areas of work from human rights to biodiversity preservation to um, nuclear security to, and a number of other things. Domestically, we worked in juvenile justice reform. We worked in housing. We worked in um, digital media and, educa and education. And then locally in the Chicago area, there was another group that just focused on our hometown that was looking at um, arts and culture in Chicago and, and farther out journalism um, and another uh, number of other things. So it was a pretty broad mandate uh, sitting on about at the time, you know, 7 billion or so um, in an endowment with an investment team that was managing that endowment and giving out you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 million in grants a year. That sounds really fun. And yes, what a chief of staff did. <clears throat> it was, it was amazing. So a chief of staff, it was different. Chief of staff really depends on whom you're chief of staffing for uh, and the relationship you have with that person. Uh, in the first case, my job was to help. I found out the day I started that my job was to help a president who was transitioning out after his tenure of 10 years of service kind of concluded. So I got to really help put together, you know, that, that final, you know, goodbye, making sure that the organization was set up for whoever was coming in next um, and make sure that everything was put in place that we could to prepare a new person to come in and, and take over efficiently and effectively. Um, with the new guy that came in, you know, probably one of the most influential people I'll ever have in my professional career in my life, you know, who had never run a foundation, never had run a board before in this way, um, or an endowment. I got to be like two weeks out front and say, you know, figure out what we're doing and help kind of be alongside the senior management team in the organization to fashion what this new leadership is going to look like, which meant I got to do everything from, you know, kind of learn the investment strategy and support the president and the board as they were um, deciding how to manage this um, this corpus through, you know, HR and helping operations at the foundation and our internal stuff, but also externally, like, being on site to go do strategy reviews around the world, helping think through, you know, how are we going to measure and um, manage the effectiveness of our grant making and our operations. The heck, Joyce, I was told at one point, like, you got to go get scuba certified because you're coming on a, if you're going to go on this trip to do marine conservation review, we're going to be underwater. And if you're not, then don't come. Um, so stuff like that, like you had to get scuba certified for work. It was stunning. Um, but the amount of learning and the people, and that's where I really got to see, because the one thing, a few of the things that was important from the role I had was, you know, to know and care for and care about all the people we were working with, all of our employees around the world, but also to really 
to try and hold on to what MacArthur was has always been good at, which is kind of maintaining a humility and realizing, you know, we're, and this is not to lessen my, you know, respect in what MacArthur and other large foundations do, but like we weren't doing the hard work. We were giving grants to people who were out, you know, trying to do lessen maternal mortality rates in pretty challenging parts of the world. People who are working on human rights issues, people who were, you know, like I mentioned, trying to reform the juvenile justice system in the United States. Like those folks are doing hard work. Again, you know, I was sitting in a nice office in Chicago trying to figure out where this money was going. And um, so that humility was, was really important. And then I think also reflecting on the difference between strategic and tactical like foundations because of the resources they've been given can be never endingly strategic, could spend years thinking through what they want to do on a certain grant making approach and could take their time because they had the resources to do it. There have been other times, like they were supporting groups that had to be kind of purely tactical. Like we have to figure out how to deal with this catastrophe that just hit, you know, with an earthquake somewhere around the world or in other parts of, you know, have been over the years been able to work with other groups that have to be kind of tactical, but being able to pull these two approaches together to be effective. That's, that's the the learnings that I know they're still working on. Like all of philanthropy is trying to figure out how to be more and more effective. Wow. Cool. And where does the money come from? Uh, so in different places. So with MacArthur, it came from um, John D was a very successful uh, insurance person uh, where he created a company, one of the first companies that was able to sell a dollar a month insurance policies to people um, and did very, very well. And then parlayed that into becoming the largest land hold, private landholder for a while in Palm Beach and in Manhattan. And then when you know the apocryphal, like, we're not sure the exact truth of this one, but it's somewhere within a bound of this where he was talking to his attorney and he's knowing that he was getting to the end of his life. He's like, look, I've made all the money. You guys figure out how to spend it. And unlike organizations that, that sat on the board or that still have kids and grandkids and grand grandkids um, on the boards, MacArthur had a professional board almost from day one where they're like, these are, this is what you're supposed to be working in. You guys go do it. Um, so it's a, it's really, a, it's a remarkable story. There've been a few books written about him. Some of him, what's in the books is true. That it's a an amazing story, and seeing just America's philanthropic sector and how it's built up different from anywhere else on the planet is a really interesting story to follow. Wow, that is really interesting. I mean, and that's like uh, something I was thinking about a little while you were talking about the humility aspect of philanthropy. And and to be clear, just because I we recognized that it was important, didn't mean we we're always good at it. Like there was an old joke that one of the foundation presidents at some point said, you know, since becoming a foundation president, I've never had a bad meal or told a, a bad joke. Like, cause <laughs> I mean, when you've got that business card, like people, people respond. Um, and not all foundations are run the same. And I don't know, it's a constant, there are always chances to think through what's the ethos of our organization. How do we want to be in the world? How can we be of service best? Um, and how are we going to incent and support our staffs to pull that off? And, you know, a lot of groups do great work there. And I think everyone who's paying attention is trying to do better. One question I have is like, 
When you are chief of staff at the MacArthur Foundation, you are chief of staff for someone running what sounds like a very large organization. I think your next job was with Jeff Skoll, who I would love for you to tell us about. But I guess like what I'm noticing is you're you're kind of getting into like what seems to me to be like a narrower organizational structure. And I wonder if that was like on purpose or... Like, I can pretend this all was on purpose, Joyce, but I would be lying. Um, I mean, there's some intention behind it. But so I had been at MacArthur for about five years, and I had been lucky enough to sit on the senior management team of that group since I got there. Um, so I mean, it was time to move on. There was there weren't any lateral moves really within the foundation. It was mostly roles that probably required subject matter expertise and experience that were well beyond what I had in you know my early 30s. So I uh, got uh, an email from a recruiter talking about this chief of staff position working for the Jeff Skoll Group and reporting directly to Jeff. Jeff was the founding president of eBay, who following his time there, launched a series of organizations aimed at really making a difference on the planet. So Jeff had four different organizations he set up, all like billion dollar plus um, organizations. Um, he had a media studio called Participant Media, which made films, but also had a TV um, production house when I was there and was working online. He had the Skoll Foundation, which was focused on supporting social entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurship. There was another non-for-profit called the Skull Global Threats Fund, which has since been kind of combined with the foundation. But they were working on five existential threats to the planet, um, you know, climate and nuclear nuclear war pandemics, which a lot of folks that were part of that group have, have had a lot of stuff going on and some other stuff. Um, and then an investment fund or a group that was managing his investments. And then the central office, the Jeff Skoll Group. So I was pulled in to help put together a staff in that central office looking over the top of all of these different organizations. So in many ways, the mandate actually, while it was a smaller kind of core team that had our same uh, email address, for instance, we were really working with a much broader array of topics than anything I had done before. So it was <laughs> one of my first duties was to, you know, support Jeff opening the Toronto Film Festival with one of participants' films, um, which was a very different experience from anything I'd ever done before. But, um, but it required similar stuff, like how do you figure out who these people are and what they're supposed to be doing and how these different systems work? How can you pull together people at the foundation and the investment group such that what they do would augment each other so their perspectives would improve what each other was able to see? And it was a, just a stunning opportunity. So wow. that's what brought us out here to Los Angeles from Chicago. Okay. Did did you like it? And I guess my my question is coming from the only the <laughs> the only thing I've known about the job title chief of staff prior to basically knowing you is like White House chief of staff, which I've read is apparently like the worst job in Washington. And so and because it's like really stressful, there's like so much going on and both of these jobs sound very, I don't know, dense. <laughs> and yeah, how did you find those jobs? I mean, every every job I've ever had in life is has been both wonderful and difficult and challenging simultaneously. 
Like there's, I don't think I have ever had a job that's just been one or the other. Um, the one's effectiveness as a chief of staff or my experience, and then we had a chance to be part of setting up networks of chiefs of staff and philanthropy and in, in some other areas. So I've had a chance to learn from some really, really good people that do this job better than I ever was able to. Like the, the connection with your principal is far and away the number one determinant of success. Uh, and like how well was I able to understand what the people I was reporting to needed and wanted, <clears throat> um, and then be able to find ways to support all those other groups that were reporting up so that they understood what the principal was looking for and also you know, had people looking out for them. Um, and it wasn't always easy and different groups had different incentives and different things that they needed and being constantly kind of in the middle of it. Like often, remember early on in being chief of staff, it was pointed out to me that often my job was to have a relationship with an executive so that the president didn't have to or could have a different one. Um, so it's like, you know, life's like that was an answer I got quite a bit. Um, so, that, I mean, there were some tough times and I'm st I don't know if I'm good at it now, but I'm certainly better today than I used to be. I, you know, anything that resembled conflict. So figuring out how to manage that was really important for me. But the, the biggest piece of it was being able to, first of all, identify what all of the different needs were in a system. And these needs are changing at all times. And so when you're talking to like one part of the whole versus another, they're looking for different stuff. To be able to understand, like to really understand what all the different groups are needing and then to be able to help fashion and understand what the overall goals were so that you could help negotiate and pull these different pieces together in an effective way to the extent possible was important. But, you know, for me, what I was taught, and I think it's true it's certainly true in the chief of staff in the White House. It's, you know, it's duty to principal, duty to organization, and then duty to staff. It's like, how how could my job is to look at the person I'm reporting to and do my best job for that person. And if for whatever reason there's daylight between you and that person, you're probably in the wrong job. You know, that's, um, and I was lucky to work for very good human beings. So, I mean, I was look, working for good people who cared about other people around them. Um, but who were all working pretty diligently to figure out what that overall vision was. So that was, that was really, really fun at times, frustrating and hard um, for Skull. Like after a while, we figured out who, like what were the capabilities that were required in that core central office. And, you know, what I did at the tail end of my service in that office was to identify people who are still there today doing a kick-ass job and help bring them in and transition them in and set them up to be able to, to, to do great work and then get the heck out of the way when I wasn't able to, to provide that anymore, which is what led to what we're doing now. Um, the access to people like and the networks I was able to kind of open up to that I never would have had had I you know stayed in a, at prior jobs before was extraordinary. And these are friendships and relationships that you know, I'm blessed with today and that get to work in and among and across or learn how to do, how to work with them. Um, so I don't know. I, I really, really enjoyed it, Joyce, being in that role. Wow. That's awesome. And do you like your role now? Are you like, and how, are, how do you like envision your future? Are you going to stay in the consulting role or uh, for now? Or? You know, back to something I said before is, you know, every, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. So, 
and pretty much every time I've been confident, really confident about what I was going to do next, I've been, you know, the world has a way of laughing at you when something different happens. So, um, but I am incredibly happy with what, what I get to do today. Like I am working with just kick-ass human beings, get to work on really hard, important problems, uh, work with people that are passionate about those. You know, I get to be a good husband and dad. I mean, that was the, when I was interviewed for the the job with Skull, the first, you know, Jeff asked me very early on, like, so what questions do you have? And the first question I asked him is, can I be a good dad and husband if I work for you? And he laughed. He's like, that's your, that's your first question. I'm like, yeah, that's really my only question. And his answer was wonderful. He goes, I, I don't have kids or a wife. I don't know, but I'll try, which was perfect. Um, but now I get to fashion if I'm not able to be a good dad and husband now in, in a company that we found, I found got to found uh, with a partner and then I'm doing something wrong. So I love the diversity of things we get to work on. The amount I have to learn just to kind of keep up with the people around me is just so intellectually rewarding. The fact that we're working on stuff, I, I am incredibly proud of the work that we get to do and the groups that we get to be doing it for. Um, and it's fun. Like we get to, we work with a bunch of great people. Um, moving into the future, I, I, 10 years, I mean, who knows what it's going to look in the future, but certainly for the near term, I think there's all kinds of great work to be doing inside porch and building to be doing inside porch and more good service to do. So this has become kind <clears> of <throat> key to who I am as a person, this organization. So being being around it for a, a good deal longer is definitely something I'm looking forward to. The work we're doing on the investment side of trying to set up a new fund focused on uh, investing in emerging carbon markets around the world, I think is really, really important, very interesting, and something that's stretching me um, and taking advantage of the networks that we've been able to build. So, so I think I'm probably doing similar things for a while, but for me, being at Side Porch means we're doing different things every three months. So no, I'm pretty happy right now. Yeah. So, you know, remembering back to when we were talking about how my dissertation director told me that no one was ever going to read my dissertation. Um, it was funny. I went back once to North Carolina and I was talking to some grad students at, at Duke, you know, and explaining, you know, five signatures on a piece of paper. So, you know, figure out what you want to do and get done and get through with it. And then, you know, no one's going to look at the stuff you, you have right now. So I was talking to this group of policy students about the dissertation I wrote when I was sitting in the chairs that they were sitting in. And then I had to give this talk. So we go into the, the auditorium and I'm giving this talk with like a bunch of words that sounded impressive. I didn't know what the hell I, I don't know. I was doing my best to try and share the experience that I was going through. And, you know, I mentioned that I wrote about the World Bank and a hand shoots up in the back of the, the audience and he's like, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to read your, your dissertation. I'm like, I, okay. It turned out it was the Brazilian World Bank director who was based in Rio was asking to read this dissertation. All of the students I told the story to, of, you know, my dissertation director says, no one's ever going to read it. And now the guy actually wrote about his office is asking to read it. So half the audience starts laughing at a not very funny part in the talk. And no one knew why. But um, I never heard back from the guy. Um, but it did actually get sent in. So maybe some of the stuff that, that I threw in there got read by, by groups I thought I was going to be serving over the years. Wow. That is awesome. And also hilarious. 
Yeah, it's like you want, it's like you kind of want people to read your dissertation, but you're also like, please don't ever read this. The, the proudest pages in that entire thing are the acknowledgments and the dedication, like the people that made the people that made it possible and that I still love and adore for the time that they gave me. And um, I'm glad I did it. Doing a dissertation and getting a PhD for me taught me how to do hard stuff. Like it's not a sign of brilliance or intelligence or any of that stuff. I don't think, at least not for me. It was like you could sit down and do something really hard and see it through till it got finished. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please let us know what you think of the show and we'll see you next time.